You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the National Community Radio Network. Today's program was produced on the Willikali and Barkindji country of the Barkindji Nation and the Githbul part of the Bundjalung Nation. We're broadcast across stolen lands via the Community Radio Network. I'd like to pay my respects to traditional owners and their elders past and present and acknowledge the continuing struggle for sovereignty and self-determination. I'm Megan Williams. Now, depending on when you hear this, you might be on your way to cast your vote or have just had your say about which party you'd like to lead the country for the next three years. And while election season is upon us, today on Earth Matters, we're going to get an update on a story that hasn't had much air this election. But flying under the radar, it's had a lot of water. The well-being of the Darling Barker is an issue that never goes away. That's why I'm speaking with water advocate and member of the Lifeblood Alliance, Sarah Moles, who's just paddled a great distance down the Darling Barker River, and Menindee resident Graham McCrab about how large flows have been managed and how the people and environment is doing as a result. Out in far west New South Wales... Graham is one of the go-to guys if you want to know how the Darling Barker is being managed. How's the river looking? Yeah, it looks awesome at the moment. So I uh, didn't actually look this morning, but we must be about 16,500 megs a day going down the river, so about a gig and a half off where it got to last time. Um, and I just had a phone call in saying that uh, Weber's on the radio this morning saying that they're going to have to go higher. But they did say that last time too, several times and didn't. But um, I think the town's really concerned now with what level it's going to end up. There's no room left in the lakes, that's the problem. He's talking about the Menindee Lake system, which is bursting with water after a couple of good years across northern New South Wales and southern Queensland. And there's more on the way. So there's been a fair bit of rain over the la- over the last 12 months, but specifically in the last week or so. Um, do you know how much water's coming down? No, and I think that's one of the big problems with the whole system, isn't it? We really, uh, New South Wales won't genuinely start to react to that water until it crosses the border, and it's, uh, it's a really difficult one to, to estimate. And for, for everyone, there's no doubt, not just the authorities, but, it, yeah, it's a pretty sad state in 2022 and, you know, nine, ten billion dollars spent, and we can't calculate how much water is going to arrive at Menindee. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's one of the big missing gaps, isn't it? Mm. You kind of you say that there's no room in the lakes. What do you anticipate happening um, as that sort of unknown volume of water comes down? Oh, I can see what's happening here in town now. There was some preemptive works done. Um, Prior to the last event, you know, around December, January, but uh, certainly there's a lot more uh, vigour and approach to actually getting levy banks and stuff in place. No point putting a levy bank in sort of a week out or two weeks out. It just doesn't have time to compact and 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 uh, and build a structure, I suppose, or hold a structure. So 
certainly a lot more talk at this stage um, with the unknown. And uh, I haven't been here for a major flood, so I can't really comment from a personal point of view. The people that have been here a long time have certainly seen that the signs. I think the current weather pattern, the last two times we had this weather pattern was 74 and 56, which were massive floods in the in, in our system and the bottom end of the Murray. And um, uh, certainly when you look at the 45-day the Rainfall forecast, which is, you know, I know that's loose and it's going to change a lot, but there's some significant rain in that, which, um, and, and everything's wet. You look at the Kalgoa as a simple example, that, that floodplains had uh, 20,000 plus megs a day flying across the border for, you know, three, four weeks now. Uh, any rainfall in there, instead of that going out to the billabongs and not coming back to the river, that, that, that area is now a catchment area and feeding water back in. So uh, you could see some significant volumes coming on what's coming now, plus what's at Surat and coming through St George in the, in the weeks to come. So another big rainfall event on top of that. And uh, it'll be interesting to interesting to see where it ends up. Yeah, so do you think the town of Indy might get flooded? Uh, no doubt. I, I couldn't think there's any doubt about that at this stage with the the forecasts that are, that are predicted. So, and, and I suppose that's one of the conversations um, is, is what do you deem a flood? Uh, you know, we didn't even get to minor flood level last time um, with the releases at 18, 18.4, I think, and we still didn't hit minor flood level. And there, and there was certainly some uh, some claims made that were, you know, weren't true about houses that would be inundated. But um, it, it's one of the, the risks of going too low for too long. Um, then you lose control and houses will go under sun. Graham speaks a special dialect of water jargon. But what he's explaining is the way controlled water releases through the main weir at Menindee were managed when there was heavy rainfall towards the end of last year. I asked him to explain the process further. Last time we spoke, you know, we didn't have the benefit of um, hindsight and, um, you know, the, the issue was that the release from the lakes was too controlled and the floodplain didn't get flooded. Yep. Um, could you just recap what happened last time, including like when when this was and, yeah, how it was managed? Uh, so it was back in uh, late, uh, started in December, I suppose, when we started talking about releases coming out of the lakes in uh, 2021 So and flowed on into 2022. There was several commitments from Water New South Wales to be above 20,000 megs a day coming out of the lakes, which um, which would have inundated uh, tens of thousands of hectares of floodplain downstream. Uh, f- after four of those commitments, one of those being 23 to go into the new year, I think the 4th of January we predicted 23 and they didn't do it. After a fair bit of community pressure, they committed to going to 20 or 21 and then they didn't get to that either. They got to 18 and a half. There was some... Um, some claims made about houses being inundated. SES got involved and, and the releases were, were stopped. And um, it then sent the benchmark at 18,000 for releases out of the lakes, which for some I think would think that that's a good thing. But now you can see that once you set a really low minimum like that, uh, it's going to cause problems down the track as we have now. We just can't get the water out of the lakes. And um, certainly it took... Different agencies, Water New South Wales, uh, the Basin Authority and the Chuo all spent some time uh, in my boat going downstream. You could see 150 mil to 300 mil was going to make a huge difference to inundation through the National Park and some of those areas that hadn't had a drink for for 10 years. Um, uh, And it was pretty disappointing to end up where we did, stuck at 18. Um, Again, on the the flip side now with with, – 
the promises or the threat of of lots of inundation, it's going to be out of control at some point, which which is going to be sad for some of those um, uh, those people in town, the, the lower lying ones that, that uh, get impacted really early on with floodwaters. Um, because we've kept it low and we haven't focused on, on trying to do better with the floodplains, we're going to cause ourselves some grief as well. Yeah. And um, just for our listeners, like, could you summarise the way water can be released from the lakes? It's a complex system with a number of different outlets. Obviously, the, the inlet is the uh, great darling Barker. Um, but, yeah, how does water flow in the Menindee Lakes and how is it that they're able to control um, uh, control the flows below Menindee? Uh, well, basically, there's three storage sections to the lake. So you have the, the upper section, which is Weatherall and Tangier, that's basically um, uh, holding water back on the Darling Barker floodplain. You can then go to the second storage, which is Pamamaru and Cape Hollow there combined, and then into Lake Menindee and, and Corndilla. So if you look at them as storage uh, compartments, I suppose, uh, there's three, made up of several um, several lakes involved in each of those sections. Uh, there's three outlets from those lake systems that come back into the into the into the Dome Barker, so they can do about four and a half thousand megs a day, um, and then Main Weir, which can basically open up and let the river run straight through. The issue you have, which complicates it a little bit, is as the river level rises, um, you get less head from the lakes back into the river, so you can release less water. So I think at eighteen thousand, it's only one point nine meters difference between the river and Lake Menindee. So it restricts the volume of water you can get from Lake Menindee. So then you have to use uh, the main weir. So you open those gates up and let the water come through. So that's basically it. So um, really, you probably max out at about ten to eleven thousand megs out of the normal outlet structures, and then you have to go to main weir to release that water. This year we've seen really devastating floods in other parts of the country. Um, you know, is this is this flood, you know, like we're kind of about to open the floodgates on um, on Lake Menindee, it sounds, or I'm sorry, on the Menindee Lake system. Um, you know, is this seen as a positive event out here or is there kind of, is, is there mixed feelings? Oh, no, there's definitely mixed feelings, but I think the... Uh... There's a minority that that are um, uh, concerned about property. I think that's a, a failure of government, and maybe some some apathy within some areas that that we haven't done more prevention work to to allow for um, flooding or, or reduce the impact on houses in our community for flooding. Um, I think for those farmers downstream, you know, they talk about twenty five to thirty five gigs a day through Menindee is a good number for them. Um, the more the merrier. So there has to be some common ground. I think 35 is a significant flow through here and would have some uh, devastating impacts in this town. Uh, but I think in 25 is a number that we should really be clearly aiming for. It gives the opportunity to create airspace in the lakes and gives a significant uh, area of floodplain um, water downstream, including the Anna Branch, which gets left out of the conversation a bit. I know it's been brought up more, but the Anna Branch lakes and those, you know, they rely on that 23 to 25 to, to inundate those areas. I think that there's a number there, whether that's exactly right, but that's what we should be aiming at and we should be preventing flooding in the town. And when you look at a big flow over Wilkenya being 30 to 33, um, uh, at the peak of a flow, the rest of that water really is going to start to break out through the Tally Walker. Um, if we can get rid of 25 gigs a day out of Menindee for, for several weeks before you hit, hit that peak, you allow uh, operators more 
more scope to control um, the top of that flow, and we certainly don't have that at the moment. It's going to go uncontrolled at some point, and that'll be, um, yeah, it'll be what it is. No one can really change that, but um, time will tell. Out here, the landscape is a series of interconnected waterways that break out of the main river channel. Water flows across floodplains or makes its way back to the Darling Barker. The Tallywalker is one such creek that breaks off above Wilcanya and flows a couple hundred kilometres before it returns to the Darling Barker. So the Tallywalker could probably get a mention in there too. Like even now with the Tallywalker connected with that last flow um, and that uh, Darren, he's uh, 50 k's up, that's still running from rainfall. So again, it highlights a tributary that would normally rain on and that water stays in that in that floodplain or those areas. Uh, that's being connected and that, that rainfall is now um, still running water back into the Darling Barker. Not huge amounts, but it's still connected. Certainly uh, the next flow, uh, as it gets above the, the 26th market at Wilcania, that'll certainly push a lot of water down the, the Tally Walker because it's already wet, it's already connected, it's running. And maybe just finally, could you talk to me about um, the benefits for the environment of water going over bank and, you know, the, what you kind of... You know, you wanted to see the water go over bank in a controlled fashion late last year. Um, can you talk to me about what that does for the river, what that does for the environment, what that would mean to the community to, the, you know? Yeah, I think the, the one that really jumps off the page for overbank flows is the yabbing for here. You know, yabbies provide a massive food source for the river system itself and, and floodplains are the... Um, uh, the engine room, if you like, for river systems, that's where you get a lot of the energy, the carbon and the, and the food source that come back in. But for yabbies, you know, the big stories of people catching lots of yabbies and enjoying feeds of yabbies come from overbank flows. So that one just ties straight back into a lifestyle thing, if you like, for Menindee. But was very, very evident of where the water got to at 18,000. Uh, the trees and the box trees that got a drink, are 10 times ahead of the other ones. The other ones still look like they're dying, even with the rainfall we've had. The ones that were actually had uh, small inundations for, for a few weeks have gone on leaps and bounds. And, and there's thousands and thousands of hectares that have missed out on that. And um, to drive down through the common on the motorbike and poke through there and just see 100 mil higher of water, how much uh, more ground and more trees would have got a drink from that, it's just staggering. It's, it's, a, it's a shameful situation we ended up in that we couldn't actually help those. And they're 10 years from a drink. We're looking at a, a, a one in 30, or one in 40 year weather event as we are. Um, and, and we haven't made the most of that yet. Mother Nature's probably just going to override everything and, and smash it. But uh, yeah, we have to do better with our water. We have a, It is a limited resource. Um, we're told that conservative governments aren't going to support buybacks. We know the Labor governments are. But if we're not going to do buybacks or reduce buybacks, then we need to be doing better with the water we've got and not just using the river as, a, as an irrigation channel. That was Graeme McCrabb, a Menindee resident explaining some of the complexity, the ideals and the missteps in water management over the past few months, with big river flows coming down the system and more on the way. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And next up, I speak with Sarah Moles, who's a long-term water advocate and's just completed a paddle down the Darling Barker River. She starts us off by telling us about her journey. This is the second time that I've made a journey along the Darling River. Um, about 15 years ago, 
um, I made a journey up the river, um, mostly by car, and the result of that finished up in a little book called The Dying Darling. And that journey had been undertaken in large part because we had a Living Murray initiative at that time, but the Darling was being ignored. And as someone who lives in the Darling system and often travels around to meetings and um, environmental watering sites and things like that, I was well aware that a lot of water was missing now and the Darling was looking very, very sick. And I was deeply concerned that um, the Darling was dying at that time. So this more recent trip was a trip down the Darling, um, much of it by canoe. And in a way, it was a bit of an opportunity to see the difference that has occurred since 2006 when that first journey was made. So we have a Murray-Darling Basin now. We have, I beg your pardon, we have a Murray-Darling Basin plan now. Um, more than 2,000 gigalitres of water has been recovered for the environment and we now have a Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder who are gaining a lot of experience in how to manage um, community-owned water and um, after, um, I suppose, a period in which the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder was, seemed to me to be a little unsure about the kind of bang they could get for their environmental water buck, I wanted to see um, for myself how the use of environmental water over the last couple of years had benefited the river and what sort of changes had occurred in the intervening 15 or so years since I last travelled the length of the system. Sarah really stressed to me the importance of environmental water, publicly owned water that was bought back by the government and the role it plays in keeping river systems healthy. And even in this wet year, with environmental water, there's still many ecosystems going thirsty. And while, yep, we did get water to the Menindee Lake system, um, we haven't had much in the way of overbank events Mm. And mm. certainly for the lower darling, my observation from the trip that we've just made is that that's a real problem. So there was enough water in recent releases out of Menindee to give the red gum forests and the red gum vegetation community a drink, but that wasn't enough to get onto the slightly higher parts of the floodplain that are dominated by the black box vegetation community. My understanding from friends around Menindi is that it's more than a decade now since the black box vegetation had a drink. And if we have to wait another 10 years before an event of this magnitude comes along, we're going to have lost the black box woodlands and all the biodiversity and ecosystem function that goes with that. So it's quite serious. It really is important that we get water out of the channel of the lower Darling Barker out onto the floodplain and that the black box gets a drink. Sarah also explained, as Graham did, about the substantial flows that came down over Christmas and New Year. But it still wasn't enough to flood the black box forest, she explains. Um, unfortunately, 18,000 megalitres a day out of the Menindee Lake system isn't enough to break the lower Darling River's banks. It won't get out onto the floodplain. In order to wet the black box, we need about 24,000 megalitres a day. Mm. Now, my understanding is that there's plenty of water coming down the system 
and that it, well, when we were on the river, about 6,000 megalitres a day was being released from Menindee Lakes while water was still coming in. I am mindful that the northern basin and the northern floodplains have had two floods, two overbank events in the last few months. The lower Darling Barker hasn't had one for more than a decade. People on the lower Darling Barker haven't had an opportunity to boost their productivity out of this kind of event, as has happened twice in the north mm. since we went into this much wetter sequence. It's still wet. The, the forecast, it's still raining up here. We've got more inflows coming in. It's a wonderful opportunity for us to rethink how we're managing Menindee. We could, New South Wales Water could release the same amount of water but send it out in a much bigger pulse and allow it to break to break the Lower Darling Barker's banks. And everybody that I spoke to on the Lower Darling Barker would welcome a flood. When I asked, you know, wouldn't it cause damage, the response was it would be a minor inconvenience compared to the benefits that we would see. Healthy woodland communities, replenished groundwater moisture, great for biodiversity, great for fish, all these benefits. Um, one has to ask why is it that New South Wales water are so averse to doing the right thing and saving the lower Darling Barker? The upper reaches of the Darling are pretty good. Right? Um, it, more water up there, I'm sure, would be welcomed by many graziers along the river. But it's the, the black box communities on the lower Darling that are in dire straits. And it seems to me that this is a rare opportunity for us to act in the national interest. It is in the national interest for us to reconnect the river from its source all the way down to the Murray and all the way down to the to the sea. If we fail to grasp this opportunity, then we will have two disconnected basins and it may not be possible for us to restore and revive the environments that depend on overbank flows. And tell me, what does it feel like to be in a canoe with 6,000 megs a day flowing past? Like what's, what's it like? It was a wonderful trip. Um, 6,000 megalitres a day below Menindee is not a huge amount of water. For much of the journey, you're down very low in the river channel and you can't really see the landscape you're passing through. You've got to actually stop and climb out and claw your way up the bank and get out onto the floodplain in order to see where you are and the state of the country around you. But down in the river, there's a nice little current that's giving you a little boost. You're, even if you stop paddling, you're moving slowly downstream. Um, and for me, we were paddling six or seven hours a day most days, and you get into a kind of rhythm. There's a, a lovely rhythm that comes with paddling and it's um, passing through a landscape that is rich in incredibly ancient red river gums, um, river red gums. Um, not a lot of um, wildlife, which surprised and concerned me. Um, we certainly saw water birds, but not in large numbers. Um, it was at times kind of eerie that it was so quiet. 
I was expecting to hear lots of insects and lots of bird noises and very often the loudest noise was the sort of shurup, shurup, shurup and the the dripping from your paddles back into the the water. Um, It's a wonderful place to be, but it would have been so much more wonderful to be on a full river and to be able to see the country that we were passing through. Yeah, and like you say, you were there in 2006, like that's kind of the height of the Millennium Drought, Um, although the Millennium Drought kind of hit more of the south than the north, if I remember correctly. Um, Did you hear more kind of insect life and bird calls back then? Like how does this kind of eerie quietness compared to this time, which was the height of the Millennium Drought? I suppose it was quite similar um, but in 2006, it, because there was almost no water in the river, it seemed obvious that there wasn't going to be a lot of life around the river. With a river half full, I have to say I was expecting to see more birds, more wildlife, um, and, and it puzzles me. I'm curious to understand why, where has it all gone, but I also find it a little frightening that it was so quiet. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. That was Sarah Moles, a water advocate from the Lifeblood Alliance. And earlier in the program, we heard from Graham McCrabb, a Menindi resident. And my name is Megan Williams. If you'd like to get in touch with us at Earth Matters, you can email earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can listen back to the program by going to 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters or searching Earth Matters 3CR wherever you get your podcasts. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is a production of 3CR Radio on Wurundjeri Country. But today's program was produced remotely on Willyakali country, with interviews across stolen land. The song taking us out today is a recording made at a workshop run by the Boneyard Sessions in Broken Hill and hosted by Barkindji songwoman Nancy Bates and Yorta Yorta musician Alara. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and if you have, we'll see you next time for more Earth Matters. Would you like to grab your double bass? Oh, yeah. One more practice and then we'll do it, record it with the bass. Big sky, really cloudy country. Nearby the Barker River flows. Where life and death go hand in hand. Takes away the pain and sorrows. This hidden life buried under dust as this vast landscape regrows. As the cycle of life reveals itself, I feel the healing in my soul. Willie Cali Country, Willie Cali Country, Yeah.